Part fourteen of Volume three of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume three of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Marcus Licinius Crassus, Part three. While Crassus was still investigating and considering these matters, there came an Arab chieftain, Ariamnes by name, a crafty and treacherous man, and one who proved to be, of all the mischiefs which fortune combined for the destruction of the Romans, the greatest and the most consummate. And some of the soldiers who had served under Pompey in these parts knew that the fellow had profited by the kindness of that commander and was thought to be a friend of Rome. But now, with the knowledge of the royal generals, he tried to work his way into the confidence of Crassus, to see if he could turn him aside as far as possible from the river and the foothills, and bring him down into the boundless plain where he could be surrounded. For nothing was further from the thoughts of the Parthians than to attack the Romans in front. Accordingly, coming to Crassus, the barbarian, and he was a plausible talker, too, lauded Pompey as his benefactor, and complimented Crassus on his forces. But then he criticized him for wasting time in delays and preparations, as if it was arms that he needed, and not hands and the swiftest of feet to follow after men, who had for some time been trying to snatch up their most valuable goods and slaves, and fly with them into Scythia or Hyrcania. And yet, said he, if you intend to fight, you ought to hasten on before all the king's forces are concentrated, and has regained his courage, since, for the time being, Sorena and Salakis have been thrown forward to sustain your pursuit, but the king is nowhere to be seen. Now all this was false, for Herodes had promptly divided his forces into two parts, and was himself devastating Armenia to punish Artavasdes, while he dispatched Serena to meet the Romans. And this was not because he despised them, as some say, for he could not consistently disdain Crassus as an antagonist, a man who was foremost of all the Romans, and waged war on Artavasdes, and attacking him, and taking the villages of Armenia. On the contrary, it seems that he was in great fear of the danger which threatened, and therefore held himself in reserve, and watched closely the coming events, while he sent Serena forward to make trial of the enemy, in battle, and to distract them. Nor was Serena an ordinary man at all, but in wealth, birth, and consideration he stood near the king, while in valor and ability he was the foremost Parthian of his time, besides having no equal in stature and personal beauty. He used to travel on private business with a baggage train of a thousand camels, and was followed by two hundred wagons for his concubines, while a thousand mail-clad horsemen and a still greater number of light-armed cavalry served as his escort. And he had, altogether, as horsemen, vassals, and slaves, no fewer than ten thousand men. Moreover, he enjoyed the ancient and hereditary privilege of being the first to set the crown upon the head of the Parthian king. And when this very Hyrodes was driven out of Parthia, he restored him to his throne, and captured for him Seleucia the Great, having been the first to mount its walls, and having routed with his own hand his opponents. 
but though at that time he was not yet thirty years of age, he had the highest reputation for prudence and sagacity, and it was especially by means of these qualities that he had brought Crassus to ruin, who, at first by reason of his boldness and conceit, and then in consequence of his fears and calamities, was an easy victim of deceits. At this time, accordingly, after the barbarian had persuaded Crassus, he drew him away from the river, and led him through the mist of the plains, by a way that was suitable and easy at first, but soon became troublesome, when deep sand succeeded, in plains which had no trees, no water, and no limits anywhere, which the eye could reach, so that not only did thirst and the difficulties of the march exhaust the men, but also whatever met their gaze filled them with an obstinate dejection. For they saw no plant, no stream, no projection of sloping hill, and no growing grass, but only sea-like billows of innumerable desert sand-heaps enveloping the army. This of itself was enough to induce suspicion of treachery, and soon messengers came from Artavazdes, the Armenian, declaring that he was involved in a great war with Herodes, who had attacked him with an overwhelming force, and could not therefore send Crassus aid, but advised him, above all things, to turn his course thither, and join the Armenians, and fight the issue out with Herodes. But if not this, then to march in a camp always, where mountains were near, and cavalry could not operate. Crassus sent no reply in writing, but answered at once in rage and perversity, that, for the present, he had no time to waste on the Armenians, but that, at another time, he would come and punish Artavazdes for his treachery. But Cassius was once more greatly displeased, and though he had stopped advising Crassus, who was angry with him, he did privately abuse the barbarian. Basest of men, he said, what evil spirit brought you to us? With what drugs and juggery do you persuade Crassus to pour his army into a yawning and abysmal desert, and follow a route more fit for a robber chief of nomads than for a Roman imperator? But the barbarian, who was a subtle fellow, tried to encourage them with all servility, and exhorted them to endure yet a little while, and, as he ran along by the side of the soldiers and gave them his help, he would laughingly banter with them and say, is it through Campania that you think you are marching, yearning for its fountains and streams and shades and baths, to be sure, and taverns? But remember that you are traveling the borderland between Assyria and Arabia. Thus the barbarian played the tutor with the Romans, and rode away before his deceit had become manifest, not, however, without the knowledge of Crassus. Nay, he actually persuaded him that he was going to work in his interests, and confound the counsels of his enemies. It is said that, on that day, Crassus did not make his appearance in a public robe, as is the custom with Roman generals, but in a black one, and that he changed it as soon as he had noticed his mistake. Also that some of his standard-bearers had great difficulty in raising their standards, which seemed to be embedded, as it were, in the earth. Crassus made light of these things, and hurried on the march, compelling the men-at-arms to keep up with the cavalry, until a few of them, who had been sent out as scouts, came riding up, and announced that the rest of their number had been slain by the enemy, that they themselves had with difficulty escaped, and that their foes were coming up to fight them, with a large force and great confidence. 
All were greatly disturbed, of course, but Crassus was altogether frightened out of his wits, and began to draw up his forces in haste, and with no great consistency. At first, as Cassius recommended, he extended the line of his mended arms as far as possible along the plain, with little depth to prevent the enemy from surrounding them, and divided all his cavalry between the two wings. Then he changed his mind and concentrated his men, forming them in a hollow square of four fronts, with twelve cohorts on each side. With each cohort he placed a squadron of horse, that no part of the line might lack cavalry support, but that the whole body might advance to the attack with equal protection everywhere. He gave one of his wings to Cassius, and one to the young Crassus, and took his own position in the center. Advancing in this formation, they came to a stream called Balasus, which was not large, to be sure, nor plentiful, but at this time the soldiers were delighted to see it in the midst of the drought heat, and after their previous toilsome march without water. Most of the officers, accordingly, thought they ought to bivouac and spent the night there, and after learning, as such, as they could of the number and disposition of the enemy, to advance against them at daybreak. But Crassus was carried away by the eagerness of his son and the cavalry with him, who urged him to advance and give battle, and he therefore ordered that the men who needed it should drink and eat as they stood in the ranks. And before they were all well done with this, he led them on, not slowly, nor halting from time to time, as it is usual on the way to battle, but with a quick and sustained pace, until the enemy came into sight, who, to the surprise of the Romans, appeared to be neither numerous nor formidable. For Serena had veiled his main force behind his advance guard, and concealed the gleams of their armor by ordering them to cover themselves with robes and skins. But when they were near the Romans, and the signal was raised by their commander, first of all they filled the plain with the sound of a deep and terrifying roar. For the Parthians do not incite themselves to battle with horns or trumpets, but they have hollow drums of distended hide, covered with bronze bells, and on these they all beat at once, in many quarters, and the instruments gave forth low and dismal tone, a blend of a wild beast's roar and harsh thunder peal. They had rightly judged that, for all the, the senses, hearing is the one most apt to confound the soul, soonest rouses its emotions, and most effectively unseats the judgment. While the Romans were in consternation at this din, suddenly their enemies dropped the coverings of their armor, and were seen to be themselves blazing in helmets and breastplates, their Margianian steel glittering keen and bright, and their horses clad in plates of bronze and steel. Serena himself, however, was the tallest and fairest of them all, although his effeminate beauty did not well correspond to his reputation for valor, but he was dressed more in the Median fashion, with painted face and parted hair, while the rest of the Parthians still wore their hair long, and bunched over their foreheads in Scythian fashion, to make themselves look formidable. And at first they proposed to charge upon the Romans with their long spears, and throw their front ranks into confusion but when they saw the depth of their formations, where shield was linked with shield, and the firmness and composure of the men, they drew back, and while seeming to break their ranks and disperse, they surrounded the hollow sphere, in which their enemy stood before he was aware of the maneuver. And when Crassus ordered his light-armored troops to make a charge, they did not advance far, but encountering a multitude of arrows, 
abandoned their undertaking and ran back for shelter amongst the men-at-arms, among whom they caused the beginning of disorder and fear, for those now saw the velocity and force of the arrows, which fractured armor and tore their way through every covering alike, whether hard or soft. But the Parthians now stood at long intervals from one another, and began to shoot their arrows from all sides at once, not with any accurate aim, for the dense formation of the Romans would not suffer an archer to miss his man even if he wished it, but making vigorous and powerful shots from bows which were large and mighty, and curved so as to discharge their missiles with great force. At once, then, the plight of the Romans was a grievous one, for, if they kept their ranks, they were wounded in great numbers, and if they tried to come to close quarters with the enemy, they were just as far from effecting anything, and suffered just as much. For the Parthians shot as they fled, and, next to the Scythians, they do this most effectively, and it is a very clever thing to seek safety while still fighting, and to take away the shame of flight. Now, as long as they had hopes that the enemy would exhaust their missiles and desist from battle, or fight at close quarters, the Romans held out, but when they perceived that many camels laden with arrows were at hand, from which the Parthians, who first encircled them, took a fresh supply, then Crassus, seeing no end to this, began to lose heart, and sent messengers to his son with orders to force an engagement with the enemy before he was surrounded. For it was his wing especially which the enemy were attacking, and surrounding with their cavalry in the hope of getting in his rear. Accordingly, the young man took thirteen hundred horsemen, of whom a thousand had come from Caesar, five hundred archers, and eight cohorts of the men-at-arms who were nearest him, and led them all to the charge. But the Parthians, who were trying to envelop him, either because, as some say, they encountered marshes, or because they were maneuvering to attack Publius as far as possible from his father, wheeled about and made off. Then Publius, shouting that the men did not stand their ground, rode after them, and with him Censorinus and Megabacus, the latter distinguished for his courage and strength. Censorinus, a man of senatorial dignity and a powerful speaker, and both of them comrades of Publius, and nearly of the same age. The cavalry followed after Publius, and even the infantry kept pace with them in the zeal and joy which their hopes inspired, for they thought they were victorious in pursuit of the enemy, until, after they had gone forward a long distance, they perceived the ruse, for the seeming fugitives wheeled about, and were joined at the same time by others more numerous still. Then the Romans halted, supposing that the enemy would come to close quarters with them, since they were so few in number. But the Parthians stationed their mail-clad horsemen in front of the Romans, and then, with the rest of their cavalry, in loose array, rode around them, tearing up the surface of the ground, and raising from the depths great heaps of sand, which fell in limitless showers of dust, so that the Romans could neither see clearly nor speak plainly, but, being crowded into a narrow compass, and falling upon one another, were shot, and died no easy, or even speedy, death. For, in the agonies of convulsive pain, in writhing about the arrows, they would break them off in their wounds, and then, in trying to pull out by force the barbed heads, which had pierced their veins and sinews, they tore and disfigured themselves the more. Thus many died, and the survivors were incapacitated for fighting and when Publius urged them to charge the enemy's mail-clad horsemen, they showed them that their hands were riveted to their shields, and their feet nailed through and through to the ground, 
so that they were helpless either for flight or for self-defense. Publius himself, accordingly, cheered on his cavalry, made a vigorous charge with them, and closed with the enemy. But his struggle was an unequal one, both offensively and defensively, for his thrusting was done with small and feeble spears against the breastplates of raw hide and steel, whereas the thrusts of the enemies were made with pikes against the lightly equipped and unprotected bodies of the Gauls, since it was upon these that Publius chiefly relied. And with these he did indeed work wonders, for they laid hold of the long spears of the Parthians, and, grappling with the men, pushed them from their horses. Hard as it was to move them, owing to the weight of their armor, and many of the Gauls forsook their own horses, and crawling under those of the enemy, stabbed them in the belly. These would rear up in their anguish, and die trampling on the riders and foemen, indiscriminately mingled. But the Gauls were distressed above all things by the heat and the thirst, to both of which they were unused, and most of their horses had perished by being driven against the long spears. They were therefore compelled to retire among the men-at-arms, taking with them Publius, who was severely wounded, and, seeing a sandy hillock nearby, they all retired to it, and fastened their horses in the center. Then, locking their shields together on the outside, they thought they could more easily defend themselves against the barbarians. But it turned out the other way, for, on level ground, the front ranks do, to some extent, afford relief to those who are behind them. But here, where the inequality of the ground raised one man above the other, and lifted every man who was behind another into greater prominence, there was no such thing as escape, but they were all alike hit with arrows, and bewailing their inglorious and ineffectual death. Now there were with Publius two Greeks, of those who dwelt nearby in Cari, Hieronymus and Nicomachus. These joined in trying to persuade him to slip away with them and make their escape to Ichnai, a city which had espoused the Roman cause and was not far off. But Publius, declaring that no death could have such terrors for him as to make him desert those who were perishing on his account, ordered them to save their own lives, bade them farewell, and dismissed them. Then he himself, being unable to use his hand, which had been pierced through with an arrow, presented his side to his shield-bearer, and offered him to strike home with his sword. In like manner also Censorinus is said to have died. But Megabacchus took his own life, and so did the other most notable men. The survivors fought on till the Parthians mounted the hill, and transfixed them with their long spears, and they say that not more than five hundred men were taken alive. Then the Parthians cut off the head of Publius, and rode off at once to attack Crassus. His situation was as follows. After ordering his son to charge the Parthians, and receiving tidings that the enemy were routed to a great distance and hotly pursued, and after noticing also that his own immediate opponents were no longer pressing him so hard, since most of them had streamed away to where Publius was, he recovered a little courage, and drawing his troops together, posted them for safety on sloping ground, in immediate expectation that his son would return from the pursuit. Of the messengers sent by Publius to his father, when he began to be in danger, the first fell in with the barbarians and was slain. The next made their way through with difficulty, and reported that Publius was lost, unless he received speedy and abundant aid from his father. And now Crassus was a prey to many conflicting emotions, and no longer looked at anything with calm judgment. 
His fear for the whole army drove him to refuse, and at the same time his yearning love for his son impelled him to grant assistance, and at last he began to move his forces forward. At this point, however, the enemy came up with clamor and battle cries, which made them more fearful than ever, and again many of their drums began bellowing about the Romans, who awaited the beginning of a second battle. Besides, these of the enemy who carried the head of Publius, fixed high upon a spear, rode close up and displayed it, scornfully asking after his parents and family, for surely, they said, it was not meet that Crassus, most base and cowardly of men, should be a father of a son so noble and of such splendid valor. This spectacle shattered and unstrung the spirits of the Romans, more than all the rest of their terrible experiences, and they were all filled, not with a passion for revenge, as was to have been expected, but with shuddering and trembling. And yet Crassus, as they say, showed more brilliant qualities in that awful hour than ever before, for he went up and down the ranks, saying, Mine, O Romans, is this sorrow, and mine alone, but the great fortune and glory of Rome abide unbroken and unconquered in you, who are alive and safe. And now, if ye have any pity for me, thus bereft of the noblest of sons, show it by your wrath against the enemy, rob them of their joy, avenge their cruelty, be not cast down at what has happened, for it must needs be that those who aim at great deeds should also suffer greatly. It was not without bloody losses that even Lucullus overthrew Tagaranes, or Scipio Antiochus, and our fathers of old lost a thousand ships off Sicily, and in Italy many imperators and generals. Not one of them, by his defeat, prevented them from afterwards mastering his conquerors. For it was not by good fortune merely that the Roman state reached its present plentitude of power, but by the patient endurance and valor of those who faced dangers in its behalf. End of Marcus Licinius Crassus, Part 3